This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Lucky for you, even luckier for me. That's right. It's been two weeks already, and once again, it is Space Night. Uh, That is right. It is time for our bi-monthly, or semi-monthly, sit down with the man that, uh, I don't want to say he knows space better than anyone, but I do feel very comfortable in saying that he makes space more interesting than anyone that speaks about it on the radio. Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. And you can also check out his podcast, The Dr. Sky Experience, at the Red Apple Podcast Network. Steve, I can't believe it's been two weeks already, but on the other, on the one hand, but on the other hand, I can because I've been jonesing to talk with you. I have a long list of things that I want to bring up with you. Well, good morning, Frank. Good morning to the listeners. And as I like to call it, with your okay, the infinite side of midnight for this particular hour as we talk about these things that are above us. And getting our minds away from the political nature of the world right now. How about that? Uh, we move but, into the uh, unknown. I'm looking for any excuse to get away from the political <laughs> nature go. of things and get into the unknown. Uh, this is a show where we like to explore the mysteries of the world, the mysteries of the universe. And I think the infinite side of the midnight captures this hour to a T. By the way, if people have questions for Steve throughout the hour on anything related to space, anything related to astronomy, even a couple of aviation questions we'll try and get in. You're welcome to give us a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Steve, I have marked my calendar for the year 2046 because I'm wondering if that's the year it all comes to an end, not just for me, but for the whole planet, Rumor has it that uh, there's going to be another asteroid passing our way in the year 2046. How worried do we need to be? Well, not really that worried. I mean, the astronomers are giving us, and we'll talk a little more in detail about this, on something called the Torino scale. It's a scale, of course, from 0 to 10, which talks about the probability the higher the number, the more dangerous the object. But here's the backstory on this particular object that now astronomers are telling us may come, well, it will come close to the Earth, but we don't know for sure what will happen. It's identified as 2023, the letter DW. The object was discovered back on February the 26th by astronomers in Chile at one of these gigantic, as I like to call them, megapixel cameras. Imagine having a mirror like, say, 100 inches in diameter or more and having the capability to have that incredible resolution on it. So they find out the object has a 271-day orbital period around the Earth. Well, that's not the problematic thing. They project in the future that February the 14th, the day of love as it should be in 2046, this particular object has already been given, now here's the interesting part, a track, a probability track that if it were, underline the word if it were, words if it were, to strike the Earth, the inclination of this object coming in over the Earth would take it over Indonesia, the Pacific Ocean, here in the southwestern USA where I am, and lower parts of the central U.S. But this particular object, as we know now, just passed the Earth back on February the 18th at about 5.4 million miles. So the good news, and this is interesting, and again, we like to talk facts here, that it has a 99.8% chance of missing the Earth. But again, why they're even talking about this, it may have, of course, a little bit too early in the orbital elements. You know, lots can happen 
in what? I guess that's 23 years in the future. Just think what we were doing back in the year 2000. So we'd have to wait all this time to take a, a peek at this asteroid. But this Torino scale was developed by scientists. Zero means no hazard, and not to go through every single one of these. A number one on the Torino scale would be, well, a routine discovery with an object that passes but doesn't present any real danger. If you go up to the level two, well, it may be something that we should start paying attention to in the sense that it gets closer and then it gets up to number three, where we really have to start paying attention. But the highest of these Torino scale numbers so far happened to go to an asteroid, which we still need to be watching. It's the asteroid known as Apophis in 2029. It will come extremely close to the Earth. But why am I even talking about this with the audience and with you about 2023 DW? Here's the interesting fact. This is not a tiny asteroid. This object has a size, the one we're talking about, 2023 DW, Frank, of about 130 to 200 feet in diameter. Now, here in Arizona, I don't know how many of the listeners have had a chance to see it. It's a great place to go. It's the Arizona Meteor Crater, which allegedly was formed 50,000 years ago by a 200-foot-in-diameter nickel-iron object, which created this incredible mileish-plus-size crater in the Earth, one of the freshest craters on Earth. But it's reminiscent of what happened by a long time ago, on June 30th of 1908. Many people may know of an event called the Tunguska event. Now, this was an asteroid-like body, which probably didn't hit the Earth, but exploded over the Earth, and its size was comparable to the DW one we're talking about. So what happened even when that asteroid, if that was an asteroid, a comet body, we don't know, in 1908, it detonated above the ground, they say. And the heat, in a lot of this, in recorded annals, was, was you know, reported that people felt the heat. Those people were incinerated that were close to it, plus animals, 40 miles away from ground zero, similar to that of a 12-megaton nuclear device exploded in the atmosphere. So the answer to the bottom line is, no, I don't think we really have to worry. But then again, things change dynamically because of things in celestial mechanics, the changeability of orbits. So we'll keep you posted. So stay tuned, right? <laughs> now, remind folks what NASA has done in terms of uh, beefing up its asteroid defense systems to make sure we don't have a, a, a danger like they had in the movie Deep Impact or the movie Absolutely. Armageddon or Asteroid with Sean Connery. Sure. Well, you have to give NASA credit. The DART mission that just successfully, as they say, I never really read the entire report because I don't think there was a detailed report yet. I think the analysis, and they're still figuring out what really happened. But what happened? This impactor hit a small binary asteroid, the little asteroid called Didymos. And we saw the imaging of when it crashed. It was amazing. You see this video of like a 4K or 8K camera as it gets closer and closer, and then you start to see the rubble pile, and then the, you know, the video goes into snow because it impacted. It left some kind of a trail in space. So the astronomers and scientists are saying, if it's yes or no, did it succeed in his mission? The answer is yes. But remember, it's going to take a lot more than a tiny impactor. That object was pretty small. It might have been maybe a couple of hundred feet in diameter, but it still had a deflection capability. But we still don't really know how to do this with any precision. It's, it's very early. Gotcha. It's like way before the Wright brothers flew. It's like just taking gliders out before we get to big jets that have jet engines. Uh, talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, if you have a question, you could call in 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Steve, I think when the, the first name that we think of when we hear the term luxury cars or when we think of great yeah. Grey Poupon commercials, or right. even um, very dramatic scenes in the first Back to the Future movie, we think of, or actually the second Back to the Future movie, we think of Rolls-Royce. We don't yes. necessarily think of Rolls-Royce when it comes to space travel. However, apparently Rolls-Royce has been working on something very big, that could help us do some serious lunar exploration. What is Rolls-Royce doing, and, and why are they doing it? Well, the history of that we could go through, but we don't have time. But if we look at the aircraft, like the great Merlin engines of World War II, if we look at the jet engines that are on, like, these 777 aircraft and others, they make a good product. So the British Space Agency is teaming up with some funding, with Rolls-Royce, of all people, to develop a small nuclear reactor that could be sent to the moon 
for future South Pole habitation modules. In other words, when they hopefully go to the moon with Artemis three, and we send people back to the moon, they're going to have to have a place to live. So what they're doing, and this is in conjunction with the technology that they've developed for the British nuclear submarines, for the nuclear engines, and I should say nuclear engines, nuclear propulsion, and nuclear reactors. So this is quite fascinating to even think about a small reactor that could be actually sent up into space, deployed on the surface of the moon, and give us, instead of depending on just the sunlight that comes from these areas on the south pole of the moon, Let's say you're at the bottom of a crater and you're in the dark because the sunlight never gets there. You would put these big masts up on top of the mountain and you would get sufficient, possibly sufficient solar power. But now here's a way to sustain the power on the surface of the moon. And again, that's a, an amazing feat of technology. And I have to repeat, it's not a fusion type reactor. It's a nuclear fission type reactor, but still, we don't have one up there yet. No, well, uh, so what do we think the timetable for actually having this reactor up and running and doing its thing might be? Best guesstimate from the articles and things that I've scoured, and I'm sure people out there have read in some detail, probably maybe as early as the early 2030s, maybe sooner. But uh, we have to get the ability to go there first and set up, a, you know, a base camp like we would set up a tent in a primitive location where no people have been before. We got to start somewhere. So that's pretty much the timeline. And obviously getting it there, uh, that's the next step as we move toward our habitation of the moon itself. A fascinating story. You know, we're um, seeing all sorts of cool images thanks to this James Webb telescope. Uh, I saw an image just this week of a, a star 15,000 light years away, uh, essentially dying, going nova. And sure. it has raised a lot of questions about sort of the bigness of the universe, the origins of the universe. What have we learned either through these uh, James Webb images or anything else that we've seen of late? about sort of the Big Bang Theory and, for lack of a better term, the theory of everything? Well, it's interesting you bring this up. I mean, Big Bang, I like to just clarify, you know, people can decide what they want to call it, but I like to call it the Big Expansion. And the simple reason is we weren't around to see an explosion. It was an expansion in all infinite directions, let's say. It came out and it just started from an infinite single point of mass. But if we believe, Frank, that the universe was created 13.77 billion years ago, and to respond to your commentary on the and question and queries on this James Webb telescope, it's been able to peer back as early as about 700,000 years into the past time, you know, after this expansion. And that's amazing because how close are we ever going to get? Are we ever going to get a blank image that shows a dot? I doubt it. But the conundrum that we have in the universe right now, here, here's a couple of con, you know, concerns that not only quantum physicists have, but astronomers and anybody studying space. We have this conundrum, this thing in space called dark matter. And if you would take the whole pie of 100% of what's out there, some 22%, not to be exact, but approximate, is this invisible component of gravity. And what's so amazing about it is, as I mentioned this many times on this program, that an astronomer who never got her Ph.D. by, you know, a bunch of men that didn't want her to get one, she pursued it and she actually succeeded. But her greatness, this is Vera Rubin we're talking mm -hmm. about. She talked about this concept of how gravity in these galaxies moves or something makes galaxies. It's found in galaxies. It's some kind of an invisible component of gravity. Now, that's dark matter. Then we get to the stranger one called dark energy, and about 74%, Frank, of our universe is made up of this even more bizarre-sounding stuff from quantum physics. What could it be in the simplest explanation? How about a negative pressure in the universe, opposite gravity, that's doing something that's even more bizarre? Like we always say, you throw a rock in a compound, the ripples go out, and then they fade away. Well, as far as the objects farther out into the universe, we would imagine that the universe expansion should slow down. Well, something in gravity, which we really don't understand, I've had the luxury, maybe you've had it too, of interviewing so many of these people who are at the cutting edge of these topics. You know, Dr. Kip Thorne at Caltech, a Nobel Prize winner. We just get the, not blank stares, but the truth is nobody really understands the concept. But remember, and this is not depressing, the rest of the universe, if you add up 74 and 22, the rest of the universe, if you're looking for the 100%, is the 4%. And that's something called baryonic matter. That's everything that you and I are made of, 
everything in electromagnetism, all the electrons and protons, the stuff we can basically, I hate to use the word see, but we have a better feel to and better understanding than dark matter and dark energy. And then it goes off onto another thing, and I'll be brief. Astronomers and physicists and quantum physicists are trying to bring Einstein's relativity theory, special angelical relativity, into an understanding of quantum physics. And by the way, Einstein was not originally a big fan of quantum physics. He, he, he tried to prove and disprove it many, many times, but his theories, you know, general and special relativity, have basically played out to be fairly darn accurate. Well, why time. was that? Why was Einstein reluctant to get on board the quantum physics uh, bandwagon? Well, that's a very interesting question because he never had the ability to really quantify, I mean, not to overly use the word quantum physics, no pun intended, he never had the ability to quantify any of this stuff because his simple term, I mean, this is almost laughable, but I think it's so cool because if you read so many of the quotes of Einstein, you know, he had such common sense and he was such a genius, but he referred to this force in the universe that was, you know, not identifiable as, get a load of this, and I quote, spooky action at a distance. But his real reason was it didn't seem to fit into the realm mathematically. See, everything, everything that Einstein did, this is so amazing. I, I, I wish I was smart enough to be able to do this on my own. And everybody out there listening, maybe they have the ability. When you study this kind of material or stuff in space and, and physics, it's all done, Frank, by something called thought experiments. So in other words, you're delving deeper and deeper in the mind of all these theoretical things. It's not necessarily just on paper. It's all these things called thought experiments. So Einstein was basically more, he wants empirical evidence to show things. They have to balance. But the problematic thing in quantum physics is, guess what? The one-in-one, one, as we call it in the, in the real world, that adds up to two, may not, when you study the depth of quantum physics, those same rules that we simply have somehow don't measure. So the theory of everything is, I think, almost an impossibility. It's like talking about God. And if you could actually dial God up and say, okay, give us the story of what the theory of everything right. is, that's the great secret. Yeah. Uh, talking with Steve Cates, uh, we're going to get to your calls a little bit later. 800-848-9222. If you want to start queuing up, that's 800-848-9222. Uh, speaking of that James Webb uh, telescope, what images have you seen that you're particularly uh, taken with, if any? Well, the, one, the most amazing one I've seen is something called the Einstein cross. And what is that? It's like if you took two objects in space that are very close together. Einstein predicted that gravitation warps space-time, and it actually warps space images. So what you see is two objects, say vertical, and on the opposite side, you see two more objects that are making what looks like a cross or an X, if you want to look at it that way. So those are the most amazing things I've seen, which actually proves what Einstein did when he went to a total solar eclipse, I believe, in 1919. He theorized that if we looked at the sun during totality, the planet Mercury, which we know would be right on the edge of the sun when it was eclipsed, you know, you take a picture. They found out that the measurements that Einstein made proved the theory that a great gravitational source like the sun does indeed warp space-time. So the image of Mercury, its position simply, was shifted. And that goes all the way out to the farthest edges of the universe. People should look it up. Look up the Einstein cross image, and you'll see what I'm talking about something called gravitational lensing. It's really bizarre. All right, we're going to continue with Steve Cates in just a moment. Uh, if you haven't seen this story, the Earth just dodged one of the fastest coronal mass ejections ever. If you don't know why, you should be breathing a sigh of relief. We'll explain why in just a moment. This is the infinite side of midnight with Frank Morano and Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. We'll take as many of your calls as we can. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight. Right ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. She packed my bags last night, pre flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm going to be high as a kite by then. 
the earth so much I miss my wife It's lonely out in space On such a timeless flight That's right. Today is none other, is the birthday of none other than what I, the man I consider to be not only the greatest thespian of all time, but one of the greatest personalities of all time, whether we're talking actors, filmmakers, musicians, the one and only William Shatner, or as I like to call him, Bill, is 92 years old today, and I got to tell you, at 92 years old, uh, this man who is very passionate about a lot of the issues we're discussing related to space, space exploration, uh, all sorts of things of that nature for obvious reasons, 92 years old today, an incredible amount of energy and still just sharp as a tack. Someone who's also as sharp as a tack is the one and only Dr. Sky, Steve Cates, talking about a wide variety of of subjects. Steve, I, I alluded to the fact that um, there was a major coronal mass ejection on the sun uh, last Monday on March 13th. What is a coronal mass ejection and, and what happened exactly? Well, interesting, Frank. This is a powerful one. It's called a halo CME. But here's the interesting story behind this. Normally, these ejections happen. Obviously, you look at the sun. If you're you know, sitting above the sun, you see the big ball. And it may, all this energy is coming off it all the time. But solar cycle 25 is really on the uptick. So as you mentioned, March 13th, we found on the far side of the sun this halo CME. What is that? A really super powerful CME that if you look at the covered image of the sun, what the spacecraft does, you know, blocks out the light of the disk of the sun. You see this gigantic enveloping cloud racing out away from the sun. And remember, the diameter of the sun is 865,000 miles across. The sun in that image is a tiny little circle. And this thing is enveloping way out into space. It hit the planet Mercury, which was also on the other side of the sun. It travels at about 1,300 miles an hour. And it moves through in the direction. The Earth was actually hit by this, believe it or not, even though it's like if you had a shotgun and you fired it this direction and you're standing the other direction. In this case, because it's all done with protons and electrons, some of that stuff seeped out around the edges of the sun and actually induced into the upper atmosphere what we call these solar energetic particles and caused from that thing, there was a gigantic flare, an M-class, which is not as powerful as an X-class, so it's all from a sunspot group that's now on the back of the sun. So slowly that's going to start migrating around the front. And here we go again. Stay tuned because solar activity from cycle 25, Frank, it's not expected to reach its peak until maybe late 2024 or 2025. So we've got a long way to go. And the sun is a very unpredictable star. And uh, we, we've talked a lot about EMPs and what uh, naturally occurring or, right. or or man-made EMPs and what that could do to things like electronics on the Earth. Sure. Um, is there any sort of danger to electronics from a CME? Most definitely. Way more than what you'd have. Well, I shouldn't say way more. If you had an above ground in the atmosphere, you know, an intentional nuclear device causing EMP, gamma rays, you know, protons, radiation... You would have the similar thing with the sun. And remember, because the sun's 93 million miles away, the energy that comes off one of these solar flares, and this is no exaggeration, the average solar flare at the surface of the sun, the photosphere, is about 100 billion times more powerful than the most powerful nuclear bomb that we've ever detonated. So this material is streaming off the sun. And since we live, what, in the digital world, as I always talk about, everybody knows that, the, the propensity to be damaged or have that particular type of devices damaged by these, you know, increase of solar activity is on the uptick. So what do we have, Frank? We have this giant ring or satellite, uh, excuse me, a ring around the Earth of satellites, and all of them can be susceptible. I mean, some have so-called radiation dampers and protection, but nothing may be able to survive one of the onslaughts of a super powerful CME or solar flare. CMEs take longer to get to the Earth, about an average of about 15 hours for them. So we just, we have a little time to know what's going to happen. 
But a solar flare occurs at the speed of light. And that's just amazing. How do you stop something right. like that? Because light speed is eight minutes away. Right. F. It's uh, it boggles the mind to th- conceive of that kind of thing. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Claude is uh, listening to us on WCBM in Baltimore. Hello, Claude. Claude, we got you. Good morning, Claude. Hey, this this space junk out there. I mean, the space junk flies around all the time, right? Yes. And couldn't that hit us and do some damage? Well, yes. I mean, we've had the absolute, you know, I remember when I lived back in the New York area, we had the Skylab scare. Everybody around the world had it. And the right. last thing we did, Claude, was look out in the night sky in July when it was coming down in that particular year in 79. And we saw this thing wandering like it was wobbling in the sky. So right. space junk is a problem. And you're right. I mean, some of these satellites, they try to deorbit them in an area in the South Pacific called the spacecraft graveyard. But we're going to talk later, I think, Frank, about the, so the ISS, which comes down maybe in 2030. NASA's trying to develop a space tug so they can make sure they pull this big 300-foot big monster down. Because imagine if it all breaks apart. But, Claude, yeah, space junk is a thing that we have to watch out for. You know, speaking of that, um, last week, actually just a few days ago, mm-hmm. in California, uh, northern California, a bunch of people thought that they were seeing UFOs, uh, and it sure. looked like that. There was videos, there was photos, Absolutely. it looked like UFOs. Um, and it turns out that it was just discarded space trash that yes. was causing this, what looked like raining fire in the California sky. What was that? in California. I'm not sure which satellite it was or where it came from, but you're right. Space junk like that, it shouldn't be coming down. Who knows? I mean, of the manned spacecraft up there, there's just ISS that we know of and the Chinese Tiangong. But if you're going to release material like that, it's going to deorbit. And for people to have seen that, as you described so accurately, it must have been a hell of a lot of material coming down from space. But hopefully it all incinerates. It puts yeah. on a nice light show. Indeed. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank and uh, Steve. Uh, my question is, how close, uh, how far have we come along to solving Einstein's unified field theory? I'm a big fan of particle physics. Well, Here we go again. It's the same problem that we've had for so long. Einstein was never a big fan of in the time he was, you know, doing these theories, general and special theory of relativity. But as I described before, this whole concept of taking this thing called the theory of everything, what we're trying to do is quantify and how do we how do we bring in relativity and the baryonic world, which is this four percent of all electromagnetics, you know, the strong and weak nuclear force and gravity and integrate it into quantum physics. And honestly, the answer to this question, Robert, I think we're still very far away, so that I don't think we have any, quote, unified theory that's actually going to be something that we're going to see. And and I don't want to be depressing on this or negative, but I don't think in my lifetime, I'm 67, I don't think we're even going to get anywhere close to that for the next maybe 60, 70 years, if that. But don't you think, Robert, I'd love a surprise out there from some scientist. That would be a heck of a way to... uh, rock the world with some new science and foundations of science for more Nobel Prizes. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Steve Cates. You can check out the Dr. Sky Experience on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Check it out at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. It's great observations on there, terrific interviews, and a bunch of other interesting uh, subjects th- that we're just scratching the surface with here today. Steve, since the last time that we spoke, uh, there was a lot of drama regarding the escalating tensions between the United States and Russia, and it had to do with this U.S. drone that was essentially downed by the Russians. What's the latest on this uh, downed drone, and do we know if this drone has fallen into Russian hands? Do we know the status of the drone debris at the moment? Well, we don't know exactly where it is. At least that's what the news sources tell us. Maybe maybe our, our military knows more, but maybe the Russians do, too. And apparently there's some sort of a search going on, and they may get there faster because we may not have the assets like they have probably many more ships in that part of the world than we do right now for recovery or anything. But just in case people are wondering what I'm talking about, two Russian Su-27 fighters, fighter jets, you know, fairly advanced aircraft. But the pilots on these did something really ridiculous. They did something very illegal. The drone, the MQ-9 uh, you know, Reaper, the Predator, was actually out in international water. People pretty much know that. So you see the video from the camera that swings back from the drone itself, and it shows the Su-27 doing a nasty, 
And that is coming right on top of it and dumping fuel. Well, that's illegal. That's In many cases, it would be considered, what, an act of war. So what happens is we see another video, and we don't know how this happened. Some allege that the Su-27 actually hit the propeller, which I doubt. We don't know how this happened. But the point that I'm trying to bring up here is people may not realize this, but these particular drones have the capability of having their own defenses. And we see so much from the Iraq war, and we see so much in Afghanistan where the drones themselves like this, these MQ-9s, are armed with Hellfire missiles. So what I'm thinking is, and I'm not telling the government what to do, but common sense would say if you're out in international waters and you're being attacked, which is illegally, you have the ability to defend yourself. And I'm sure one of those Hellfire missiles would find a nice home right up the tailpipe of the afterburner on the Su-27. But we don't know where this is. But to learn so much more about this, I, I read so much, and maybe many people out there follow him. Tyler Rogaway at The Drive, his particular website is really jam-packed with information on all these things that are going on militarily with aviation, and uh, he's a pretty good source. So I follow him, and that's pretty much what I could tell you right now. One of the uh, planets that I think has intrigued many of us has been Venus. Uh, we've never, uh, we, we've really just scratched the surface of what there is to know about Venus. But this week there was some news that uh, there was some serious volcanic activity on Venus. What is this volcanic activity, and what could it tell us about life here on Earth? Well, this is strange because this is a planet, Frank, when we were in school, we all had Venus as the Earth's twin. Well, it sounds cool because it's about the same size. But if you look deeper at Venus, we've talked about it before, but first-time listeners, this is the information that I think is really interesting. The planet is encased in the sulfuric acid clouds, carbon dioxide. The surface temperature is 900 degrees Fahrenheit all the time. And if the surface of the planet, many people thought it was smooth. Well, it's not. But the images that were taken by the Magellan spacecraft in the 1990s, this is the accurate story here, they imaged certain areas on, Mar on Venus, excuse me. There's a gigantic volcano on the surface of Venus called Ma'at Mons. And the Ma'at is actually named for the Egyptian goddess of justice and truth. You'll figure, I don't know how they named that mountain. But what they saw in those Magellan images is changes in puffs of smoke coming up out of the caldera or the top of that volcano. So up till now, I mean, this is like a late revelation. Those images were taken a long time ago, and scientists now re-examined it. So now we're thinking that vol volcanic activity is probably something that does indeed, from these images, verification. But here's what's strange about Venus. The Earth has tectonic plates, you know, the shifting of the ground and the rock formations, the whole chain of fire that we see in the Pacific, you know, these shifting plates causing, what, magma coming up and earthquakes. But Venus doesn't have tectonic plates, so what's the source and, and way that volcanic activity or volcanism is taking place on the surface of Venus, a strange planet? It may one time have had life, not necessarily like humans, not necessarily like animals, mm. maybe microbial life. But here's the strangest thing of all. We're starting, looking for life on Mars. We're spending all this money. And some astronomers have said, look closer. And what do they mean? Venus, of all the planets, gets closest to the Earth. It gets within 25 million miles of the Earth when it gets closest. That's closer than Mars's 34 million. But what they're saying in the cloud tops, Frank, of Venus, there may be these particles called phosphenes, and phosphenes may be either the outproduced uh, source or you know, something to do with life or organic life. It may be that it's the waste material that organic life is pumping out into the atmosphere or maybe the nutrients that they eat, whatever these microbes are. So they may want to one day send these balloons. I know we've heard enough about balloons coming over here. But they may have balloons go, spacecraft-type balloons, that can actually survey and get into the atmosphere. And wouldn't that be strange if life or organic life was found on Venus's clouds before it ever was found on Mars? So um, what else do you think we can learn about Earth as Earth and what life might have been like here in observing this volcanic activity on Venus, if anything? Well, volcanism obviously is the biggest polluter in the entire world. I mean, we talk about climate change, and obviously people don't want to just pollute intentionally and keep it, you know, we, we try to sort our trash and do all the things to be good people. But the point of the matter is, volcanic activity produces so much carbon dioxide. Just look at what happened here on the Earth last January 15th in the South Pacific, this submarine volcano called the Hunga Tonga 
submarine volcano exploded, and it sent so much ash. And if you see some pictures of the sunset, by the way, if you look out in the evening sky, hopefully we'll have, we've been getting nothing but rain here in the West. But if you have a clear night, wherever you're listening to this show, you may want to see right after sunset these beautiful colors in the sky, like purples and majestic pink colors. That's still aerosols from the volcanic activity. But what we can learn, Frank, very quickly, is that life here on the Earth may have been a multi-staged development, obviously. It didn't just happen like snap, boom, here's the bacteria. The main contention and the main theory, I should say here, in contention, is that this concept called panspermia, where objects like comets, meteors, transported DNA here to the Earth, and in those activities when carbon dioxide-rich environments, a lot of these bacteria thrived and followed up by generating oxygen. So we have a lot to learn from these planets. But Venus, don't you think it's very surprising that you would imagine a hostile world like that may yet have the answers to where life is in the solar system, yeah. even in a microbial way? Hey, speaking of, uh, of Venus, I read in Axios yesterday yes. that the future of a major NASA mission to explore Venus may be in jeopardy. Um, mm-hmm. Apparently, this has to do with President Biden's budget request for right. NASA and what the implications may be for the Veritas mission to Venus. Uh, what exactly is happening uh, here, Steve? Break this down for us. Well, there's only a limited amount of money for these budgets that NASA has. And I don't know the exact number, but there was a time, I think recently, where the budget of NASA was only about $18 billion for their funding. So they have to shift money around all over the place so that they can actually, you know, keep these big programs going. Artemis is a big, uh, you know, it has to be fueled and so many others. So they may be pulling money from the Veritas mission. There's also another mission to Venus called Da Vinci that's supposed to go to 2029. So we need to learn so much more about what's happening on the surface of Venus. But it's a very difficult place to do research because if you go to the surface, It's like you and I crawled down into the ocean, or I should say more appropriately, swam down about 3,000 feet under the ocean. The pressures, atmospheric pressures and temperatures there are just so difficult in which to do the ground-based analysis like we do and take for granted. And it's a hard job, too, on the surface of Mars with the rovers. And we alluded to this earlier, the International Space Station. Apparently, they are developing a plan to, uh, to do a tug to get it out of orbit. Um, why? Yes. Why, why, do they want, why do they need to map a deorbit tug to bring down the International Space Station in seven years? What's going wrong or what's going on that the, mm-hmm. that the International Space Station needs to be brought down? Well, it's so big. I mean, and the funding, I mean, it's more of a funding source we're talking about. But if you take a look at this device, I mean, this tug that they're looking to do, the tug itself would slowly pull down this particular spacecraft in a controlled deorbit, as opposed to having this thing where it just goes willy-nilly, like you had the Mir space station, which wasn't really a totally controlled burn. So that's something that will help indeed to uh, bring down uh, the the you know the eventuality that the ISS has to come down because it can't stay up there forever. What happened with the space station Mir? Did it did it hurdle back down to Earth? It did. It was actually tried. It was tried to be placed down in that graveyard that we call it in the South Pacific. If you look off the coast of like Chile, there's an area in the South Pacific where if you take a look at a map, there's really like nothing there. It's like there's no land. Tahiti is way out there. There's like no place. So what they decided, this is an international computer, community of space you know, uh, companies like NASA and everybody else, like Roscosmos, that they would say, okay, we're going to designate this area as a space graveyard. And with Mir, what they tried to do was do this without having any tug. And what happened was it was kind of like, well, it's going to come down in that area, but some of these pieces are going to fly off and nothing hit the ground, at least that we know of. So basically it just disrupted in a large area safely over a large area of ocean. The, um, you know, why don't we take a quick break? We're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in just a minute. If you have questions, you're welcome to give us a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is the infinite side of midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
The great Frankie Avalon singing about Venus. This is The Other Side of Midnight, but on a semi-monthly basis, we make this The Infinite Side of Midnight as we have a a chance to chat with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, about things that are above us. And uh, we're doing just that. Uh, Steve, let me get your opinion on the, uh, the new space suits that NASA revealed this week. What do you think of them? How would you describe them? Well, I think they're great. They're more streamlined. If you look at the Apollo spacesuits, that, of course, 12 humans went to the surface of the moon, we find out that these spacesuits are incredible because, let's put it this way, if you were to try to bend over on the surface of the moon, ask those astronauts that are still alive that went there, it was very difficult to twist around your torso to actually pick something up if you drop it. So these new spacesuits are very streamlined. And the first iteration of these spacesuits We've seen on the Crew Dragon uh, space missions, the uh, you know SpaceX. They're interesting. They look like uh, kind of designer clothing, but they're very functional. But the ones that are going to go to the, that are going to go to the surface of the moon, they showed the original ones as a black type of outfit, black material. But they're going to be white for the reflectivity, so that you can see each individual astronaut, men and women, on the surface of the moon and identify them. And something else that maybe people don't recognize on the Apollo missions, you saw. Both of these astronauts that walked, let's say, on the surface of the moon, the two men at each time they went to the surface there during Apollo, they both had identical spacesuits. But one on their helmet had a red stripe, so you could identify which one of the astronauts was which. Because imagine if you're trying to talk from Houston and you're trying to give orders or commands or just even listen to what they're saying, you want to identify. But these new spacesuits, Frank, I think are amazing. I would only uh, wonder. Imagine how much they cost. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. I mean, do we have any idea how much they cost? I do not. And, and I know the other spacesuits that we're talking about with the Apollo mission, they stated that in the 1970s dollars, they were probably worth about $2 million a piece if you were to actually try to buy them at your local you know, retail store, which is impossible. But I can only imagine. Maybe, who knows? Maybe the cost has gone down significantly. But I think it was a company called Hamilton Standard that actually developed so much of that technology. But wait to see. I mean, let's see. They look pretty exciting. They they do indeed. All right, we'll try and squeeze in as many calls as we can here. Dave is in Lockport. Dave, what's your question for Steve Cates? Yeah, uh, Dr. Sky, I've got two questions. One, uh, doesn't it make more sense if you're going to spend the money to send a tug up to the uh, ISS? Uh, Doesn't it make more sense to put it in a higher Earth orbit? And the other question is, why didn't we ever make a space station in the shape of a donut like uh, all the sci-fi I read when I was a kid? I'm, I'm 72, you know? Yes, sir. Well, Dave, thanks. They're great questions. Here's my answer to the first one. The tug itself, they want to bring this space station down, okay? They, they want to see it deorbit and burn up, obviously. But here, going to what you're talking about, why not put it up into a higher orbit? Well, there's probably no logic to that either, because eventually if that spacecraft was pushed higher, who knows, maybe in the future, it might still wander back down here toward the Earth and then deorbit at a later time. So what they're trying to do is do something that you know, I think is pretty, pretty smart on their part, but it's going to cost them a lot of money to do that. But the second question, I'm sorry, I, I didn't quite hear that part. Just, just give me that again. Oh, I, uh, I, I, I disconnected him. But I think it was, why don't they make the, spa- the space station in the shape of a donut? Oh, okay. Well, that's a good question because the, the most prolific one, and we all remember it from the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. It's interesting. We haven't had the ability to build something that large in space right now. So what we're doing is we're building these horizontal longitudinal space stations because they're modules. It's easier to attach modules and ask any child when they build a Lego project. You know, they're snapping things together along a, along a line. Eventually, you get into a larger shape. But the problematic thing with, with that is it's easier to attach modules, and it's a little more difficult to build one of those round circular donuts. But the benefit of the big circular donut is that you could create artificial gravity in there as the one in the 2001 space movie showed, well, you could actually have the ability to create an artificial environment of gravity. Maybe that's coming, but probably not anytime soon. Steve, there have been some, what they, what's been described as strange circular dunes on, uh, on the surface of Mars. Uh, what do we know about these dunes that have been spotted on Mars? Well, the pictures are quite interesting. They show these large brown or black circular objects, And what happens is the winds on Mars are pretty powerful. 
And it's not a place you and I would probably want to be during what we call dust storm season. Winds can get up on Mars' surface, allegedly, over 100 to 200 miles per hour, maybe even more. But what we're seeing here is images taken by this interesting spacecraft that's in orbit. It's called the high-rise camera that the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter took from, you know, high up in orbit. But the reason we're seeing these weird shapes is the melting of the polar cap or the ice that we see or the frost. Remember, it's not water ice. It's frozen carbon dioxide. And the winds on Mars do some strange things to that. And we all know from, what, childhood science that if you take a little block of dry ice and stick it in water, you got yourself a little fog machine. So things happen differently when that type of material made of frozen, you know, carbon dioxide, dry ice, is hit by winds. Mars has some very interesting winds, but I think some of these were pointed more to the south. It all has to do with the wind structure on Mars. I um, I really enjoy when I have you on the on the air because you give folks an idea of what they can expect to see in the night sky and what they can yeah. be on the lookout for. I understand that uh, between now and the next time we speak on March 28th, that certain people may actually have the opportunity to see five planets in the sky. Is that accurate? Well, again, we've got to go with what the media says, but kind of give the little warning and the factual stuff. They're talking about five planets that are visible, but here's the real truth. Not to be depressing here, but accurate. The planet Jupiter, Mercury, Venus, Uranus, and Mars are all going to be in the evening sky. Here's the truth. Venus, if you look into the west at sunset, clear sky, it's hugging low into the horizon. It's easy to see with the naked eye. Mercury may be a little more difficult. It does get bright enough at times where you can see it with the naked eye or binoculars. Venus, wow, we spent a lot of time in, in this particular episode, and rightfully so, the goddess of love and beauty. You can't miss that. Naturally. It's beautiful. But here's the problem. Uranus, which is the way I like to pronounce it, it turns out to be a planet that's not visible to your naked eye at all. It was discovered back on March 13, 1781 by this William Herschel astronomer. You can't see that. And now Mars is fading. So simply, if you want to see these planets, these are the ones you'll see. You'll see Jupiter, Venus, and look straight overhead. Mars is still naked eye visibility, but it blends in with a lot of the stars. So there's the truth. Uh, sometimes we read in these Internet blogs and such and Internet you know, news sources, they talk about this, but they really don't give us the, the real stuff. I mean, how could you think you could see Uranus even in a telescope? It would be a little difficult at this time of the year. But technically, they're all along a line in the sky. They're there. Mark is in Baltimore. Mark, what's your question for Dr. Sky? Thank you so much. Dr. Sky, uh, great to have you on. Um, Richard Hoagland, thank you. Good morning to you too. Richard Hoagland, or Walter Cronkite's former, late Walter Cronkite's former space advisor for CBS News, wrote a book called The Monuments of Mars, and recently mm -hmm. the high rise orbiter took some photographs of the Cydonia area. What's your take on that? Is there a face on Mars or not? Well, there is something geologically that looks like a face. Now, I'm not qualified to say this. I know Richard, I think I respect his work. But the thing is, if you look at the certain angles when the sun rises on that particular region of Mars and other areas, you bet it has the, you know, it has the facsimile of a face in itself. Whether or not it's an artifact of previous civilizations, that's beyond my level of knowledge. But here's the thing. Wouldn't it be great, Mark, if we had a spacecraft one day that will land right there? And then we'll be able to see, just like I always say, for anybody that doubts that we ever landed on the moon... Let's take one of these tiny little satellites, you know, some of the high-tech companies could do it with no, I don't know why they don't do it, land with one of these 4 and 8K cameras or a little rover, and I want to see the lunar module, that's the descent module that's still there, the American flag that might have fallen over. But in this particular case, I have no idea. I would, I would hope and be open-minded that maybe something was living or civilization did live there, but right now it's probably just an interesting geologic form that looks like the shape of a face. Let me squeeze in one last question here. Robert's in Philadelphia. Hello, Robert. Great to talk to you, Mr. Case and uh, and Steve. Um, I watch How the Universe Works a lot, and listening to you after last night is really cool. But I had a question. They're talking about the Intrepid rover on Mars, and it had a power supply that was supposed to die after eight to nine months, I believe. And 12 years later, it's still running. And I'm wondering if you thought it might have anything to do with what Tesla was talking about when it comes to drawing electricity from the atmosphere. And I'll hang up. Thank you. 
I don't know, Robert, but you bring up a very interesting situation there. If something is running out of power, my only guess would be maybe it came alive again if the dust, I know this sounds like a crazy answer, but it's pretty accurate. The dust that goes on the solar panels on the surface of Mars is a major problem. So maybe something that happened there with the dust, maybe the winds blew it and it came back to reactivate. But I don't know. I would wish that somehow we could prove those theories that Tesla had, that actually pulling electricity out of the atmosphere is something that we can do. That's, I think, is something I think both of us, uh, Frank, we should call up uh, Elon Musk and maybe ask him his opinion. Yeah, uh, I'll put that at the first, uh, the top of the list of questions that I have for him. Hey, uh, speaking but, yeah. of Mars, I understand they discovered a modern glacier, or at least there's signs of a modern glacier on Mars. What could you tell us about this very quickly? Well, here we go again in accuracy and reporting, and not to knock these people that do these reports, but here it is. They're seeing something toward the equatorial region of Mars. This is not something where they saw up in the, you know, frozen carbon dioxide uh, snow area or snow cap. This is something along the equatorial region. More than likely, it's a salt formation, but I would find it very unusual if that was a true glacier with temperatures that are moderate at the equator, not the extremes that are at the poles of Mars. Steve Cates, uh, check him out on the Dr. Sky Experience. Go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com or just search the Dr. Sky Experience on any podcast app. Uh, Steve, it's always a pleasure. The hour always flies by. I look forward to talking with you again in two weeks. Thank you. Have a good morning, and thank you, everyone. All right. In the words of the great Casey Kasem, keep reaching for the stars, but always keep your feet on the ground. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.